excited to introduce our speaker, Rachel Gardner. Um, I think it was about 30 years ago, probably, I was in a church in Hayward Teeth where Rachel's dad was the pastor, a guy called Charles Erica, Charles and Lynn, Rachel's parents. Some of you will um, also remember Charles and Lynn Erica. And um, so it's 30 years ago, which is pretty terrifying. Um, and then um, before I was a pastor, I was involved in a, a Christian event organizing charity called Spring Harvest and um, was responsible for a lot of the youth and student provision that we did there. And that included setting up a national conference for youth workers called Youth Work the Conference. And for about five or six years, Rachel and I hosted that together. And um, so I'm so excited, Rachel. Rachel's got like this long list of job titles. Which is, uh, she's president of Girls Brigade. You're on the board for Home for Good, the charity. You're director of Youthscape, which is an amazing charity that does youth provision and support and encouragement for youth workers. Um, she is married, has two kids, and next Monday, so a week tomorrow, she and her family are moving from Harrow to Preston to be part of a church plant um, with the HDB network to be a team to go and plant a church. So she's moving in a week, and she's come today to speak here, which I think deserves a massive round of applause. So Rachel, thank you so much. Come on up. Thank you. Oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. Yeah, Jason and the children were going to be here, but my, my parents live at Ashburnham Place. And we, we arrived there last night, and, and Granny got the, the paddling pool out. And then my mum, like, has this hold over the kids. And I think because we're moving next week, we just felt better for them to stay there. But Jason sends his love, and it's lovely seeing our dear friend Ian, Bob and Janet, others around that I know. And I just want to honour... Jim and Dom, I want to honour you both, because Jim sort of puts it out there, I just did this little thing. Well, Jim set up a, the Youth Work the Conference with a few others that are here, and it was the first time, really, that youth workers from all across a whole range of churches in the UK got together to be resourced, equipped, um, inspired by God's Word, empowered by the Spirit, and so began this wonderful legacy that Dom and Jim bring here, and I just want to thank you for being prophetic and kind and passionate national leaders and local leaders here. And when I heard what your gift day is for today, oh, wow, that's amazing. Like, you're really being church. Like, that's amazing. So I am so honored to be with you today and really, really excited. And, and I'm impressed by acts of resistance. Do you, do you get impressed when you see people sort of taking a stand? My daughter, our daughter is now seven years old. But, but when she's three, when she was three, there was one evening where it was bedtime. And, and I'm quite into empowering young people and children. And I said to her, Daisy, it's bedtime. Up the stairs, it's time for bed. And Daisy turned on the stairs. My daughter doesn't speak, she announces. And she turned on the stairs, and age three and a half, she said, Mommy, no. And my no is enough. I was seriously impressed, but I'm still in charge. I'm the boss. So she was upstairs in a few minutes, but I was so impressed. Like, that's amazing. I took her to Northern Ireland once to a beautiful church in Causeway, Coast Vineyard. And um, I took her for a little walk. She was a bit older. And there was a dog barking behind a fence. And she turned to the dog behind the fence and said, Dog, I want to play with you, but I don't understand you. <laughs> that was amazing. The acts of resistance. My friend Joanne, 
um, who I, uh, she lives in our part of North London. Uh, she's been involved with Tear Fund, spearheading the resistance against plastics. Have you seen that in the news? That's a Christian. That's a Christian by that. She goes to Nestle in uh, Switzerland. It's a tough life. She hangs out with David Attenborough. And she says, come on, actually, because we might not share the same faith, but we share a love for the planet. And so she has been really instrumental in, in inspiring not just the church, but the whole nation to resist plastics. Jim very kindly said that I'm president of the Girls' Brigade, England and Wales. It's political. There's other groups as well. Now, 45,000 girls in the UK are part of Girls' Brigade. Many of these girls are not from Christian families, from other faiths. Um, and, and a girls' brigade girl is called Leia, and she lives in northern Nigeria. And two years ago, she was part of a group of girls that was kidnapped by Boko Haram, this rebel force, and taken into the bush. And I'm not going to say what happened to her, but you can imagine what happened to these 14, 15-year-old girls kidnapped by Boko Haram. Um, and after about a year, Boko Haram began to allow some of the girls to go back to the village. And this is how they worked out who would go. All of these girls traumatized, all of these girls abused. They went along the line and they said, Do you, are you a Christian? Do you love Jesus? And all of Leia's lovely Muslim friends, who she loves passionately, who have been equally traumatized, said, no, I, we respect Jesus, but we're Muslim. And they were allowed to go back to their community. Can you imagine the horror and the trauma they'd experienced? When they got to Leia, they said to Leia, do you love Jesus? And Leia said, I love Jesus. And so Leia got to watch her friends go home. And Leia is still being held by Boko Haram. And she sent this message back with her Muslim friends, a little message to her mum and dad. She said this, say to my mum and dad, I will see you again one day. If not in this life, then resting on the bosom of Christ. Which is, which is just staggering, isn't it? That level of resistance of knowing who she is, of knowing what she's about. At 15, watching her friends go home, but knowing that if she says, I love Jesus, she has to stay in hell. And we know that Jesus is with her. But those sorts of stories inspire me. And I'm so excited to come and speak to you in this theme of being rooted. So I've been listening to the sermons. I've been stalking you online. I've been working out. I've been like putting little cameras in your offices. No, I haven't at all. No, not at all. <laughs> but this theme of rooted, I love it. And the idea of being rooted and the scriptural idea of being rooted conjures up in my mind what you've been talking about, that strong tree in Psalm 1, of a tree that is big and strong and the roots run deep. That whatever happens in life, this tree can withstand, this tree can resist the storms and the gales and the changing seasons. This tree is strong enough. I, I suppose it raises the, que the question for me, how strong do I need to be? How deep do my roots need to go? To be a person that can resist the storms of life. That knows when I need to bend. When I need to roll with it. When I need to say, God, what's come my way? Although I don't understand it, I'm going to roll with this, God. I'm going to bend. I'm going to let you shape me. And when I say, no, that's not God's plan for me. No, that's a scheme of the enemy. No, I can stand and resist that. Like knowing the difference. What do we resist? When do we bend? How deep do our roots go? How strong do we need to be 
to be people who can resist. Years ago, before Jace and I became parents, and like, we thought we were busy. <clears throat> we thought we had no time. Oh my goodness, those days. Those days are gone. And uh, we went for a walk in the Lake District. So my husband's a northerner. He's got a shaved head and a big beard. Um, he uh, likes to put his food where he can see it because he bought it and paid for it. He's a northerner. He's solid. He's a solid boy. He's a vicar. And when he wears his dog collar walking around northern North London, people are like, are you going like, to attack me or are you going to pray for me? <laughs> it's like he looks really seriously quite aggressive. He's not aggressive at all, but he looks quite aggressive. And we went for this walk around the Lake District. And I am a true southerner. Apologies. I don't want to brush all of us with the same brush. But I hate wet weather gear. I don't wear vests and tuck them in. I don't own a pair of wellies. And I like to at least see Starbucks on my horizon, if it, like know, know where it is. So I hated going for this walk around this lake. And I was moaning the whole way around, like, no, I don't want to do this walk. And so Jason is just like, Argh. So we get down to the edge of this beautiful lake, and the weather is getting worse and worse and worse. And as we turn the corner, like this wind comes out of nowhere down the valley of the mountains, across the lake, and right up to us, and comes our way and sweeps me completely off my feet and chucks me back on the ground, at which point my husband thinks this is the best thing ever, and is laughing his head off, divine retribution, and then drags me behind a tree. But of course, it doesn't take him out. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's heavier, he's got more weight about him. And I guess that's my question as we delve into a beautiful passage in Scripture today. God wants to make you heavy. (laughs) Not heavy in a kind of, I don't change for anybody, or difficult, but that kind of weight that says, I'm carrying the glory of God. Like I know where my feet are placed. And I often speak to rooms full of women. And women, your weight is beautiful. Don't apologize for your presence. Don't apologize for your voice. Let your life take up room. Let other people feel the weight of what God's doing in you. I just love that. So my challenge for today from Jim was, how does Jesus approach the word of God? How does Jesus handle God's word? How is it that he is a man of resistance, of strength, of resilience, And as we're thinking in this series about the Word of God, we know, don't we, that deep within Scripture is the answers of what we're looking for, and we've got to kind of mine it. We've got to wrestle it. And and today we're going to look at how does Jesus handle the Word of God. So if you've got your Bibles, you can switch them on and turn to Matthew chapter 3. It's a famous passage that you probably know very well, the temptations of Jesus. And we're looking at how Jesus approached the Word of God. And I'm going to read this passage to you, chapter 3, verse 16, through to chapter 4, verse 11. And I think what often happens with this passage is we often focus in on the, a third of how Jesus uses Scripture. I'm only going to stretch us a little bit to look at the other two-thirds How does Jesus handle the word of God in this very familiar passage for us? I'm going to read it to you. My my Bible version might be slightly different to you, but uh, let's roll with it. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 11, which is a chunky bit, 
and we're going to deal with it. Here we go. (laughs) And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, "Mm, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. The rest of the stuff that I'm going to bring is footnotes. <laughs> this is the word of God. So in this incredible, I mean, even as I read it, can you feel it? Can you feel the dust and the hunger and the isolation and the temptation? And and in this passage, what we see in how Jesus retorts and speaks back to Satan is the fruit of what he does with the word of God. Because we see three things. Number one, before he is driven into the wilderness, he hears God's word. Did you catch that? As he comes up out of the water, the voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. So he hears God's word. Number two, he fasts like he works the word of God into him. And number three, he picks it up and uses it as a weapon. As disciples of Jesus, the only weapon we are allowed to use ever is the word of God. It's a weapon, and in the hands of Jesus, in the mouth of Jesus, as one who has heard God's word and said yes, and has wrestled with God's word and worked it into him and said good, and then speaks out God's word and says this is true and I'm going to live it, it is, it is like a sword. Like you can really sense that the enemy is like, I can't get through to this guy. Like everything I bring at him, I come up against this brick wall. My friend Will Vanderhaar runs um, a think tank around Christianity and mental health. And he talks about how when we say yes to God's word, it's like our heads 
say, yes, that's true, that's right, that's right, God, that's, that's right, I believe that, that's right. And then our hearts have to say, and it's good. Like, it's not just right, it's good, there's life in this for me. And then with our whole being, I'm, I'm so glad that the, the lovely gentleman that read the word and then spoke, he talked about bodies, because sometimes... In the West, we forget about our bodies. Our bodies matter. Our breath matters. Our weight matters. And so with our whole weight, our whole being, we get behind it and we speak it out. I love young people. I was a little bit of an insecure, didn't know who I was teenager. I remember meeting Jim and Dom and them introducing me to The Cure. <laughs> I don't know if you still love The Cure band now. And I was like, oh, I want to be I didn't know who I was as a teenager. And I love being with young people now because there's such a wrestle on, there's such a battle on, isn't there, for their identity. But what is it they're going to say that's true to? What is it they're going to say it's not only true, but it's good? And not only it's true, it's good, but I am going to stand up and speak out and declare this as truth. The word of God in your mouth is powerful. It's not positive thinking. We don't get up in the morning and go, my life's a mess, but as long as I kind of think good thoughts, it'll be okay. We wake up in the morning and we say, God, your word that your promises are new every morning, that's true. I believe that with my mind. It's also good because if you say it, then it's good for me. It's life for me. It'll bring me life. And if it's good and it's true, I'm going to speak it out. So this morning, as I'm washing up and straightening my hair and doing my lippy and whatever else that men that you do, um, actually, God, I say, today, today I'm going to be a woman or a man who lives in the promises of God, that whatever my eyes see, whatever I'm dealing with, whatever's coming my way, I know the truth, and I live in the truth, and the truth sets me free. So, Jesus, in this passage, he is resisting the evil one. And I just, I love these sorts of stories. Like, when I was a kid at Sunday school, like, you don't have too many coloring in sheets of Jesus, like, freeing people from demonic attacks, do you? Like, I, I think there should be a bit more of that in Sunday school. Like, I love these stories where it's like a smackdown. I love it when Moses, like, goes to Pharaoh and says, you think that's good? My God can do this. I love that stuff. I love this kind of stuff. So how does Jesus resist the enemy? And what can we be drawing from this for our own lives? Because it's got to land in our own lives, hasn't it? So number one, I've talked a little bit about it, the wilderness. So Jesus allowed himself to be led into the wild place, a place where you quickly work out what you're made of. And he's got nothing but the word of the Father ringing in his ears. Do you know that? Have you had experiences like that? Where you're like, God, I thought like being a Christian meant that I was like going to be in a little bubble and everything was going to be okay. And somehow following you, it's like I've been driven into this place where I just get to face how tough everything is. Have you ever had that experience where you've woken up and gone, how did I get here? There's like a wilderness around me. I'm facing like the depth of my sin or the depth of my weakness or my impatience or, or just how difficult life is. And God, all I have to go on is what you've said to me. Have you ever experienced that? Don't run from it. 
Don't run away from it. I mean, there are times where we know we are actively being disobedient to Christ. Like, we know there are times where we're being actively disobedient to God. But there are other times where there's no willful disobedience. We just find ourselves in a place where we're just like, whoa, this is tough. If you are in that or you've been in that, you're in good company. Jesus experienced that. And it was the spirit of Jesus that drove him in there. And I don't know how you picture Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I used to think that he'd be sat in a cave, like twiddling his thumbs, like, oh, day 29. It's got a few more days to go. I I just thought it was pretty passive. Like, what do you do for 40 days and 40 nights if you're not eating or going to Starbucks? Or like, what what do you do? What do you think Jesus was doing for 40 days? He's in the wilderness. He's about to kind of launch this incredible kind of gospel mission. And he's got... The word of the Father in his mouth. I think he's kind of regurgitating that time again. I think he's letting that truth settle into him. Father, you're here. Father, I'm yours. Father, this is all about you. Father, wherever you take me, I'm not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. Like all the stuff that we see in Christ's life, he's been working that into who he is in the wilderness. And he's fasting He's saying, I'm going to be dependent entirely on God's word. Like those times in your life where you feel stripped of the things that have propped you up in life, the things that have made you feel as you think a Christian should feel, the certainty that you maybe felt when you first said yes to Jesus. Those times where all of that is gone and you are left going, Jesus, are you here really? God, are you here really? Those fasting moments. Years ago, my friend has given me permission to share this with you. Years ago, um, a dear friend, a couple that I knew very, very well, Christian friends at church, been married for 20 years. And I'd seen my friend on the Friday night. And the Saturday morning, early in the morning, the husband rang me and said, Rachel, you have got to come round now because she's dying, as in his wife. I'm not going to name them. And I was like, what? I saw her last night. She's my age. She's fine. Like, what do you mean she's dying? And I went round, and she was in their double bed. He was in his pajamas. And and he said, look, she's just told me the most awful thing. She's just woken up and told me that the whole of our marriage, she's been having an affair with somebody at work. And she just woke up this morning, and it was just like the shame and the pain and the, the fear. And I'm not shaming my friends. I'm not shaming her. But the fear and the insecurity and the decisions and the impact of that had just got so much that she just had to tell me. And once she told me, she was like, that's it. I, I can't live with the guilt of this. I can't live under this. I'm going to die now. And she li- it was literally like she was dying. Her face had gone ashen. It was, it was like we called another friend around who's a doctor, a Christian guy. And he was like, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? And we did not know what to do. So for my dear friend, this husband, sudden wilderness. And for my dear friend in the bed that's been living this life for 20 years, sudden wilderness, like all we have to go on is, God, are you here? Like, like we're not going to play any worship music now. We're not going to do a Bible study about this. We're not going to get a session resource downloaded. Like, God, are you actually here? Like, what happens here? What happens when the mess of life hits the fan like this? And all of us, all of us know that we are capable of all sorts of things, don't we? And so we did the one thing that we just knew to do, and that was just say, God, we're going to begin to speak out what we know you say is true. 
which is that our friend, she loves you, and she comes before you, and she confesses this, and God, bring her back to life. And when we sang that song about the body began to breathe, that always gets me, because I just think, imagine being in the tomb, and it's silent. And then suddenly Jesus goes, like this dead body begins to breathe. Can you picture that? And that's literally what happened to my friend. She just suddenly went, and she began to breathe. And it's like God lifted, he did literally lift the weight of the sin off her life. They are still married. They're an incredible couple. They've worked through all sorts of things. They've faced hell. In that moment, they leant hard on God's word, and they found that his word is true and good. And as they speak it out, there is life. So the wilderness fasting, and he fought back. He used the word of God as a weapon, as a shield, as a defense. I've not had an experience in my life like my friend, where I've been so tempted to give up on God, where I felt so like that. But I, I can experience what Christ experienced with the enemy here. Have you noticed how subtle Satan's temptations were to Jesus? So he says to him, if you are the son of God, and on face value, that's nuts. What has Jesus just been meditating on for 40 days? The fact that he is the son of God. That's not up for grabs. The fact is not up for grabs. What the enemy is getting at is, as you are the son of God, you define what that means. As you are the son of God, turn that stone to bread. You can do that, Jesus. Easy as that. Go on, show it. Because you are the son of God. So now's the time to begin to kind of prove that. As you are the son of God, turn that into bread. As you are the son of God, he's not going to let you die. Jump off from there. Come on, I'll be cool. Be amazing. Like, imagine launching your career, Jesus, jumping off a temple and the angels catching you. Like, that's going to make your ministry a whole lot easier. Like, imagine, like, imagine showing everybody, I own all this stuff. Can you see how subtle that temptation is? How, How do you deal with the temptations in your life? Because I, I think if, if the enemy came to me and said to me, Rachel, God doesn't love you, actually. I think I'd be like, uh, hello, yes, he does, look at the cross. Like, that's quite an obvious one. What I find so subtle is when he says, well, Rachel, because he loves you and you keep messing up, you're going to get to the end of God's love for you. I know he loves you, he's God, like, it's what God does. But there'll come a point, Rachel, where you'll just mess up so much that they're just, you'll run out of grace. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, that's subtle, isn't it? Or, I know that God has called you, but actually, you're pretty rubbish at this. Like, the person next to you does a much better job. Like, the youth worker in the church down the road, they're taking 29 young people to New Day, and you're only taking half. Like, you know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Like, that subtlety that undermines. Like, if God had really called you to be a CEO in this business, then actually more people would have become Christians because you're the CEO. And the fact they haven't means that maybe you've got it wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? That subtlety, that subtlety of temptation. That is why, friends, it is so important that we do what Christ does, that we let the word of God dwell richly within us so that we detect the schemes of the enemy when he brings those nasty lies our way. 
And he goes for us. And we say, hang on a minute. I'm not having anything to do with this. It smells of death. It stinks of hell. And it's a big fat lie. Jesus, help me identify the lies of the enemy. And help me to speak back with the truth of Jesus. And this is still the enemy's plan to make you and me weak at the core so that we crumble, to drive confusion into our identity, to drive insecurity into our status as a child of God, and to drive doubt into our calling, to drive mistrust into the promises of God. And Jesus speaks back to the enemy, and he uses all of his quotes come from a certain passage in Scripture. I wonder if anybody wants to get like a chocolate brownie for telling me where in the Bible. It's Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying to God's people, listen, you are about to enter the promised land. Like, God's rescued you out of Egypt. He's dragged you across this wilderness. Like, you are about to step into a land flowing with milk and honey. Like, it's on the horizon, guys. Like, the future is bright. It's, it's happening. Now, watch out, because the moment you get into there, the moment your bellies are full, the moment your bank balance is sorted, the moment life is cushy, do not forget God. And Moses keeps saying this to them. And what does Israel do time and time again? It's face palm, face palm, face palm. What do they keep doing? Forgetting God, disobeying God, running after foreign idols, like intermarrying with other religions, which meant that for them in that time they worshipped other gods, blah, 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 blah. They kept doing it. And what we see in Deuteronomy 6 to 8 is Israel being the faithless son. And what is Jesus who is Jesus? Jesus is the faithful son. So in another wilderness, at another key moment in God's plan of salvation, the faithful son harks back to the old days with the faithless son. And he uses those passages and he says basically, Satan, they went awry. I ain't doing that. Not on my watch. Like, I know who I am. I know what this is about. I know what I'm called. And I know your plans, enemy. And that is still, we need to be really real about the powers we cannot see. Don't we? And not to get all kind of like seeing the enemy behind every chair. But you guys as a church are stepping out in some beautiful stuff. I mean, you're taking some territory. You're going after the oppressive powers of homelessness. The God's small g of homelessness and poverty. And you're saying, we've got a house. And in this house, people are going to be housed. And not only are they going to be housed, they're going to find out who they are. And they're going to build a different life. And their kids are going to stay with them rather than be taken into care. And there's going to be a new legacy and a new destiny in every person that comes in this house. Do you know what? There's an enemy that does not want that to happen. He doesn't want it to happen. He'll want to drive confusion into that. He'll want to drive mistrust into that. He'll want to make it really, really difficult. But you know what? God is bigger and God is greater. And this is his plan. So friends, get behind it with all that you have got. Get behind it with all that you have got. So here are three, three thoughts then and three passages from the Deuteronomy 6 that I'd love you to take away and to wrestle with. And I'm, I'm doing this too. So for Jesus, 
resistance and the freedom that comes from resisting the enemy produces three things for Jesus. And I think it's the same for us. Number one, we are known at our core. Like the reason that we can withstand and speak out God's words, because actually the more we say, God, I want your word to live richly within me, what happens is we realize that we are known at our very core. God knows us. So when the enemy says, but God doesn't really, you're like, shut up. Like, he knows me. He knows me on my good days. He knows me on my terrible days. God knows me. He doesn't make a mistake. He's under no illusions about me. He knows me. You are known this morning. You are known in your innermost being. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Moses says this to the faithless son, Israel. For you are a people set apart as holy to God, your God. God, your God, chose you out of all the people on the earth to be for himself a treasure possession, a personal treasure. When God called you to himself, he knew who he was calling. He knew. He knew it. You didn't have to come and be all shiny and show your best bit. He knew exactly what he was getting with you and me. Thank goodness. We have two adopted children. Our, our youngest is just turned two. And three weeks ago, Thomas became legally ours. Forever and ever. Amen. Yes. And, um, but at Spring Harvest two years ago, uh, Jason and I, my husband and I, we'd just been approved to adopt our second child. And we sort of said, oh, gosh, like, how do we know who, who we need to adopt? Do we just take the first child that our social worker presents. Like, God, we want to say yes to your will for our lives. And my husband, who does also have um, quite severe ADHD and struggles to sit in services, and he's a church leader, so anyone else that, like, is right now, like, shut up, I need to move, you're in good company. And so he went for a good walk around um, Minehead, and he said, he never prays this, he said, God, will you give me the name of the child we're going to adopt? And he felt God give him the name Thomas. That's not a name. It's in our family. It's not a name he's ever talked about. And he just held it. He didn't tell me. A week later, the social worker rang me and said, look, we found a little boy. We think he'd be great for you. And I said, can I ring back in an hour? Because I'm just in a school doing some stuff. And, and as the hour came to an end, I thought, oh, I'm, I need to ring her. Okay, Lord, um, um, if, if this little boy's name is uh, Thomas, then we'll find out more. I just picked that name out of the air. Social worker talked to me, told me everything about him. And, in, and you need to know this. You get told everything. Everything. We know about his past. We know about the pain and the anguish in the birth family and the suffering and the addiction and all of it. We know it all. And in your heart, it just goes, come on, bring this kid on. I want to shelter him. The more we know about him, the more we want to shelter him. And at the end, she said to me, let me tell you his name. His name is Thomas. And I went, Ugh! And she went, are you having one of your weird God moments? And I was like, no, it's fine. Because <laughs> she's a social worker. She needs to know that we're safe. She's got to do her job properly. doesn't help if I say, God's given me the name Thomas. She went, black mark. So we didn't tell her that bit until afterwards, until he was legally ours. And we're like, Juliet, <laughs> we've got a story to tell you. <laughs> um, and I went home and I said, Jace, you will never believe it. I picked a name out of the air, blah, blah, blah. And he said, let me stop you there, Rachel because I think God's given me his name. And I was like, oh no, what do we do if it's a different name? 
who's been listening to God? <laughs> like, who's trumps on this one? And we said after three, one, two, three, and we both said Thomas. And like, it's that moment where like, we know God is real, but in that moment you go, oh, there is a God. Oh my goodness, maybe you should become Christians. Like, it's one of those moments. God knows you. He knows you by name. God knows your name. He knows what goes underneath your name and behind your name. He knows the stories that nobody else knows. He knows you. And second point, you are loved at your core because knowledge of you drives the Father to loving you. He loves you. You are loved at your core. Deuteronomy 7, 7. <laughs> Moses says this, is a message version. God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love. I mean, Moses is like, come on, guys. Like, God doesn't love you because there's anything particularly special. He just, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Which is a countercultural message, isn't it, in a culture that you're worth it. Like, we are made worthy of love because God loves us. Like, when you are feeling completely unworthy of love, you bring that to God because that's exactly what his love deals with. It's often when we feel most unworthy that we get to experience God's love in the only way that we're supposed to experience it. As a child that can bring nothing to the Father and the Father gives everything in return. You are known at your core. You are loved at your core. And the last one, you are emboldened at your core. Deuteronomy 6, Moses is saying to people constantly, there is an inheritance for you. There is an inheritance for you. Like, don't chase after other gods. Resist the temptation to let anything and anyone else define who you are and your relationship with God. Like, he is yours, you are his. And the reason is, he has got everything for you. Why would you look elsewhere. And as we dwell in God's word and we allow God's word to dwell in us, as we get into these passages and say, I'm going to read that story of the woman caught in adultery again and again and again. I'm going to read the prodigal son again and again and again. I'm going to read those bits in Isaiah where God says, I'm hunting you down. I'm loving you. It's love. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep reading those passages and allowing that to resonate within me and get into me so that I know that I am known at my core. I am loved at my core. And I am emboldened at my core. And when the struggles of life come, and when the schemes of the enemy come, I can withstand. Not because I've got solid footwear on and I've tucked my vest in, my jeans, but because deep inside me, I know who I am. This word, that Jim preached powerfully last week and the other leader the week before, and I just loved it that he had a massive Bible there. And this is the only book we will ever hold that is living and breathing. Like, it can feel like a dry, dusty text. There are passages in it that I struggle with. There is stuff when, like, there's a rape that happens and, 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 like, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Or, like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and they're about to have sex with the men and the, the father's like, well, have my daughters instead. You're like, ah, like, wah. There's so much about this. It is difficult. Like it was, so much was written at a different time and God speaks the language of the people that he talks to. Like we've got to wrestle with this. But you need to know that God is speaking to you from this. 
This is his story that you're welcomed into. This is God's word living and breathing. And it is true and it is good. And you can build your life on this. You can build your life on this. Wow. Have we got time for one more story? Because God's love woos us. And I just wanted to share this last story because I, I wonder whether we land here. I wonder if this is what the Spirit wants to do. Because I've been really cerebral with you. I've like talked at you and you've listened. And actually really, we need to let God do something deep within us, don't we? To really embed this in us. And Daisy, we adopted Daisy when she was 14 months old. And when, and when she came to us, she was quite a frozen baby and non-responsive. And she wouldn't sit on our laps or us. And um, over time, we sort of, sort of bonded with her and her with us. And her and I had a really good relationship right from the start. I'm, I was mummy. I was doing everything for her. But Jason, she was a little bit unsure of him. Like, he's loud. He's northern. You know, it's, it's a lot, you know, ooh, I'm not sure about daddy. And after a year of, of, um, of, of her being with us, he went to Malawi, took our young people to Malawi. Um, and I was quite concerned about him being away for a couple of weeks. And when he came back, like, how would that be between her and him? And, and, and in the run-up to that, for about nine months before him going to Malawi, he would take her upstairs and give her her bath every evening. So he'd come in from work, we'd have dinner together, he'd take her upstairs, and she would scream as he took her upstairs, I don't want you, I want mommy, like every single night. And he would do like this amazing bath, and he had all the bath toys and all the voices, and eventually he'd get her calmed down, it was fine. But Every night she would scream, I don't want you, I want mummy. And after about three and a half months, there's me like, that's my 20 minutes of being on my own. I'm not going to give this up. I said, Chase, how are we doing with this whole, like, her screaming at you? How, are you okay? And he said, yeah, she's my daughter. I'm going to woo her, whatever it takes. And even as I say it to you, I'm like, oh, like amazing. He was like, she's my girl, if that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And lots of you dads and stepdads and foster dads in the room, you know that. You know that feeling. Anyway, so he goes off to Malawi. And after two weeks, I've like been taking her his photo. Look, Daisy, Daddy's photo. So we go to the airport to collect him. And she's in her frozen princess dress. And I've packed her full of white sugar because that's always a good idea. Um, and there's a big poster that says, Welcome Home Daddy, that I made in kind of kid, kid writing. Any other parent ever done that? <laughs> I mean, uh, look, she's done this for you. Um, and the plane was really late, really delayed landing. So she is beside herself at Terminal 5. And we are stood at the gate. And eventually I see on the screen, they've landed, thank goodness, and they're going to come through the gate. And so we're stood there waiting at Terminal 5. And as people are coming through the gate, she begins to shout, you're my daddy, you're not my daddy. And I'm going, welcome to England, hi. You're not my daddy. And eventually she sees this very bedraggled, tired guy with loads of teenagers around him. And she spots him and she shouts, you're my daddy. And she runs to him and I was blurred. Like, he was beside himself. And nobody else would have known in that moment, you know, what, what happened there. That these months and months and months of him wooing her produce this fruit where she suddenly sees him and says, you're my daddy. Like, I want to be with you. 
When God says he loves us, he does the hard work of that. Like he woos us. He knows the experiences we've had in our lives that make it hard for us to trust. He knows that. He knows how to love you in your language. He knows your love language. He knows how to find you. He knows where you hide. He knows what makes you feel strong in the times where you look strong, but actually inside you're crumbling. And getting into God's word, seeing what God does, will remind you that God woos you, and he finds you, and he loves you. You're my daddy. You're my daddy, I'm yours. Shall we pray together?